Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, very excited here to have our guest today. You know, we're going to be learning a lot about cybersecurity, you know, crazy stuff, you know, that is happening nowadays, uh, building, scaling, being profitable before even, you know, getting your first investment, uh, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our, our guest today, Ruben Aronashvili. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So originally you were born in Akko, there in Israel. So tell us about your upbringings. How was life growing up there? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting place to let's say to grow in, right? As a, a, my neighborhood was not the easiest one, right? You can imagine a, a situation of a, a lot of a crime, let's say in in the neighborhood, people that are not really looking for being educated. That's not like the primary goal there and so on. Uh, so not an easy place to go to go in. However, when I was there, right, you see that like the best place in the world, right? Uh, that's a very interesting uh, way to look at things as this is home. You know, the friends that you have there are your family. And uh, only when you look at it, uh, you know, retroactively, right, uh, trying to see what you had there, only then you understand how difficult it was. But when you leave that, it's not really difficult, but uh, I liked every second, right? Uh, I really enjoyed going there. Um, different lifestyle, much easier, simpler, but uh, yeah, enjoyed every minute. You know, when I moved to Tel Aviv for the first time, things were completely different. I met different people, different uh, atmosphere. Um, it was definitely different, but uh, really, Akko is always going to be my home. You know? I can imagine. So then math and computer science, when did you start to develop that love for for numbers and computers and, and so forth? Yeah, so that started very early, right? Uh, when I already was in elementary school, uh, I was always, uh, let's say, better than the others, let's say, in these kind of uh, science uh, classes, uh, whether it's uh, math, uh, biology, physics, and uh, any other kind of uh, scientific uh, class uh, that really was my passion. I really enjoy that. And uh, when I decided to go to a career path that included an academic, uh, let's say, uh, portion of it, I decided that uh, computer science and math is uh, 
the combination um, computer science for the practicality and math for the soul and you know that uh, this combination together actually provided a, a very nice uh, tool set I would say that I'm still using today so let's talk about your SATs because I know that was quite a quite an experience so tell us about the SATs what happened I was a part of an academic excellence program uh, that in order to get into this part, you need to work like six or seven months before uh, in order to get into the program. Now, I was presenting my uh, final uh, project in uh, Tel Aviv as uh, my project won a specific contest uh, in uh, in Israel, and I presented to some uh, very important people in Tel Aviv University when I was 16 years old, more or less, or 17 years old. Just before the army service, I met there someone from a program called Atidim, and he told me, "Hey, listen, if you want to get into Atidim, you need to do your SATs tomorrow, right?" And that's something that usually you prepare, you get prepared for for quite a long time. Uh, so I got there uh, to this uh, specific exam, like clueless, without understanding even what is the structure uh, of the exam, what the specific uh, tools you need to have, even the pencil that you have, you need to have a special pencil to to use uh, for the SATs. I didn't have anything. It was quite embarrassing. Uh, but uh, yeah, luckily for me, I managed to get a very high score there. And that was everything that I needed in order to apply and uh, be accepted uh, to the university and specifically to what uh, my first choice was in Tel Aviv University. Nice. So let's talk about being confused and being viewed as the maintenance guy when you show up in university. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, so my first uh, course in Tel Aviv University was uh, linear algebra. I came late, as always, right? I came late uh, as I was coming from Akko to Tel Aviv, like a two hours uh, ride, uh, just arrived, got into the class 15 minutes late, and the professor stops everything, and he starts really to, to, to shout at me, right, and say, hey, where have you been? We are waiting for you for too long. See the people here, like we are in Israel, it's so hot here. How can how can we manage to to have a class in this kind of uh, <laughs> temperature? You told me it's really uh, not okay that uh, you allow yourself to not come uh, before uh, three weeks before and so on and so forth. So uh, he's continuing, you know, to shout and so on. I'm going and sitting and you know opening my uh, uh, specific small table, getting out of my bag just my notebook and telling me I'm one of the students. That's okay. You can continue. <laughs> he was uh, so embarrassed. Uh, that was very funny. But uh, yeah, now we are very good friends. Uh, this professor missed. <laughs> well, ho- hopefully, hopefully he gave you a good grade. So uh, good stuff. So in your case, yeah. you know, obviously this was the a good segue into you uh, going into the army, and the army, you know, was a pivotal, you know, part of of, of your career, and and you were there for seven years. But here is where you actually started to really get deeply involved into cybersecurity. So tell us about this. Right. So um, before joining the Army, uh, I was, again, in the university. I learned a lot about the computer science, engineering, and so on and so forth. But the training that I got, uh, let's say the offensive capabilities uh, of uh, red teaming, attacking organizations, and so on, that's a training that I got in the Army in a very specific unit called Section 21 that when I joined the Army, that was really the time of foundation of this unit. So myself and my team around me, we actually built everything from scratch there, from 
recruitment processes to standard operating procedures to a specific syllabus of the courses that we needed to take, what uh, the training is, is going to look like, uh, what we are going to tackle, is it infrastructure, application, you know, a lot of decisions that we made at the time and really um, were crucial to the success of this specific unit. So it was more or less an uh, experimental uh, experience at the beginning because uh, we didn't get the mandate for sure. We got like a, a one year to demonstrate whether we are able really to take this role. And then uh, in the end of the year, we got the mandate after we demonstrated the what we were able to build, and that was a huge success from our point of view. Uh, at this point, we got uh, started to get more and more responsibilities around uh, getting full access to the Army networks in general, whether that was uh, Navy, Air Force, and so on. Later, we got the responsibility also for protection of secret services in Israel, and then the critical infrastructures of the state of Israel, uh, in a way, right, in a combination with uh, some of uh, the secret services in Israel, and that was really the, the best time that we had in the army because at this point we were really demonstrating uh, capabilities that were new to the uh, to the Israeli community, let's say. Um, and that was something that was developed since then to be a huge success story. And obviously, you know, a lot of classified information there, so we can't really go into detail. But, but what would you say that, that you've learned or that it gave you this experience of being seven years, you know, in terms of discipline too? Because, I mean, I... I, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming from Israel, startup nation, and and it's amazing, you know, like that 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 way of thinking, that mentality, that that training that you really receive from from being in the army. That then it's it becomes very very helpful as you are looking at uh, tackling your professional career, and more importantly, building a business because ultimately building a business is like going to war. You know, it's a, you're you're in the battlefield every day, like putting out fires and stuff like that. So tell us about how, how or, or what kind of approach or visibility or perspective being in the Army for so long gave you. Yeah, so, you know, you find yourself very quickly in a situation that uh, you need to provide a solution to an organization that is one of the most attacked organizations worldwide, right? You're talking about tens of thousands of attacks every week that are targeted attacks coming from different ranges or different capabilities uh, of attackers, from script kiddies all the way to nations around us. Uh, we have very good neighbors around us that, uh, you know, their all objectives are really to train our cybersecurity units. So they are doing quite a lot in order to make sure that our teams will be always prepared. So you find yourself in a situation that you have to innovate, right? Because you have limited resources, you have a lot to deal with, and you start to find yourself, uh, you know, in... in really in a situation that you need to be able to prioritize, to optimize resources, to make sure that you are able to distinguish between important to non-important things, and so on. All of those skills are highly important for business, right? Where you put your emphasis, where you invest, how to prioritize, how to say what is important and what's not important, and delegating, and so on. A lot of capabilities that I have to say, those are things that you really learn in the army and, you know, I joined the army when I was 21 years old and you get responsibility that is definitely more than you can take on yourself. But again, you're young and stupid and uh, you don't care. You say, hey, uh, this is a great opportunity. Let me, I'll take everything that you give me, you know, and only later when you're older, you understand the huge responsibility that you took on yourself. And, you know, it's already history. And that's, I think that that's the amazing part of the Israeli army. People that are getting out of the technology units 
are dealing with problems with complexity that is something that is very hard to find outside this kind of uh, organization, which I think that's really the basis uh, to what you see in the Israeli market. That's why innovation is coming in this magnitude, you know, when you compare the number of successful startups to people in Israel. That's a very nice ratio. It really is. It really is. So, so in your case, let's talk about breaking out of the of the army and then you know starting and and, and building your first business. So tell us about how that process was. After uh, six years of uh, service, um, I had the opportunity to uh, to finalize my duty. I extended uh, for one additional year. I wanted to make sure that our uh, unit has everything that uh, you know the people that need in order to continue in this uh, impressive track record that we had at the time. Um, so I extended for one additional year, and then I decided to continue to a more civilian career path. I went to one and only um, interview uh, in another company in my life, which made me understand very clearly that with the situation that I saw in the Israeli market, with the level of uh, sophistication uh, that was not very impressive to me, at least at the time, um, I decided that I want to go to a more, uh, let's say, my own journey and decided uh, to uh, develop my own business uh, and, you know, put emphasis on quality and not on quantity. So at the beginning, at least, I wanted to uh, to really find several key customers, work with them and provide them with the highest level of capabilities that they can have. And uh, very quickly, I had uh, the opportunity to get the initial uh, opportunity in Europe, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, with a company called Philips. Um, very nice uh, organization. I really enjoyed uh, and still enjoying working with them. Uh, a great, amazing organization. And since then, you know, the rest is history, right? Uh, after uh, uh, a successful work was done there, I got uh, very good references and very good introductions from the people there. And based on that, um, I started uh, to get more and more traction, found myself very quickly being uh, like a trusted advisor uh, to C-level executives uh, in different organizations, uh, first in the European market and later also in a, in a, U, uh, in a US-based organization to start with. And the expansion to the U.S., that's something that happened um, quite intensively, but in a later stage. Uh, Europe was my main target at the so beginning. I, so then what, what, what ended up being the business model of Sai? Like, talk to us about, you know, what it exactly, what do you guys do and how do you make money? When I started, I was doing pure professional services. That means uh, taking a very realistic approach for offensive security. Uh, no estimations and not uh, uh, assumptions, really nothing acting as a, let's say, as a military unit trying to attack an organization and come back with a report saying where the gaps are and how to solve those gaps in the most effective way possible. Later, um, when we grew up and we became a, a company, right, uh, which happened uh, um, starting from 2016, uh, when uh, uh, the company really grew up uh, in a pace of more than 100% a year, we started also to develop a technology that is uh, both uh, um, helping us with scalability to be able to automate some of the capabilities uh, and uh, you know maintain at least the same level of, of quality. And more than that, we've developed algorithms that uh, today are considered unique in the market to 
optimize mitigation and cybersecurity investment in organizations. That's something that is quite impressive, very heavily based on mathematical approach and uh, computer science. Uh, really, the um, academic experience that I had really came handy in this case. And uh, we use that quite intensively in order to provide organizations uh, with a mathematically proved uh, capability to invest cybersecurity funds and to being able to distinguish uh, between important and non-important uh, cases or mitigation plans. Because in, 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 in your case too, I mean, we're talking about a business that, um, that, that was profitable since day one. I mean, in fact, you know, before you guys even took your first tranche of money, I mean, you were already like 6 million plus in revenue. So, so let me ask you this. How much capital have you guys raised today, Ruby? Total fundraising until now around 140 million. Okay. Um, I have to say that uh, we had two rounds uh, in our history. First with uh, 83 North uh, and some uh, angel investors, uh, which, you know, at this time, we uh, we wanted to have 83 North as our uh, advisors to how to transform a business from, a, let's say, one of project-oriented kind of business to a more SaaS-oriented subscription-based uh, business. Uh, and that was uh, our transition in uh, 2018. Uh, and that was great uh, to have Joram Sneer, our, um, you know, a member of the board coming from 83 North and a very good friend and a true professional, you know, in the market uh, helping us there. And at the beginning of this year, we added also EQT, uh, which was our customer from 2016. And 2021, we decided uh, that uh, their capabilities, their network, reach out, and so on, can be highly beneficial for our go-to-market and expansion worldwide. And we decided uh, that we want them as partners as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, this was uh, the tool. I mean, the investment part was really uh, the connecting, uh, to connect the dots between us and them. Uh, the, the financial aspect of it was Less important, of course, always important, but less important, uh, more important was the partnership and the capabilities that the company like EQT brings to the table, which from our point of view is really um, changing quite a lot. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned this because typically founders, when they think about fundraising, they think about fundraising because they want access to the money. You know, in this case, obviously, you you had the money. You, you were getting, like, good revenues from customers. Uh, but but you realize that it made sense to raise money so that you could access, you know, the networks of whoever was giving you the money, whether that was to distribution for subsequent rounds or whatever that was. But as they say, you don't know what you don't know. So at what point do you realize that it makes sense to, to raise money from people, even though you don't need the money? So, you know, we never raised money before we knew our partners very well. I mean, 83 North was our customer before we started working with them as, a, as an investor. And EQT, we know them, as I said, five years before we started to, we had them as, as, uh, as partners. So not only that we knew what their influence was, what their power and strength was, uh, we actually worked with them already as some kind of partners before we've done the, the transaction. So... We, we've done the try-before-you-buy process uh, quite intensively, and I think that that was very successful. You know, the next time that uh, we'll go, if we go to fundraising, will be when, we need a, when we'll have a specific requirement or need that uh, we'll find a, a partner that uh, their skill set, capability, network, or any kind of uh, um, specific capability will be appealing to us, and that will be the next time that we'll, uh, we'll go for fundraising. 
again the the financial situation uh, offside is very solid and uh, really the money at the moment is not really the point but uh, you know always every now and then to get recognition also by the market with uh, nice valuations high valuations that's also good so I, I don't take it uh, for granted that's also important however that's not the most important and in your guys's case, I mean, obviously raising, you know, this 140 million that you guys have raised, I mean, it's pretty impressive being out of the U.S., you know, being in Israel. So what was that approach to? Because, you know, when you're outside of the U.S., it's a little bit more, it's a little bit tougher, really, to raise this kind of uh, of money. So how, what kind of approach do you guys take in order to make this happen? Yeah, so, you know, since we raised money in the beginning of the year i think that uh, fundraising in israel actually changed dramatically there are a lot of players in israel that are willing to write uh, very large uh, checks let's say uh, so uh, we've seen 100 and 200 and 500 million of investments in different organizations so i'm very happy for uh, the israeli market and i think that that's a huge majority phase uh, so maturity phase that we are going through in israeli the israeli market from the 100 to 200 to 300 million of exits that, are, of course, are very impressive and very nice to see, to developing more mature organizations that are going to IPOs and to, to the stock exchange in the end. Uh, so from my point of view, this, uh, you know, getting the market more and more mature and getting the recognition from investors that are worldwide investors, most, most of the investors are really not Israeli investors that are deploying the the large amounts, uh, that's uh, a huge sign for, uh, let's say, the quality that we see in the Israeli market. And again, there are a lot of great solutions in the market. Personally, I can tell you that uh, we started our journey. We knew that uh, we are not going to add any partner that will be majority in our organization. So we wanted to go to a minority investment because, again, we wanted a partner and we didn't want uh, uh, someone that uh, will uh, get ownership of our organization. So uh, based on uh, a very well-defined, let's say, formula we got into the sum itself, it could have been easily uh, less than that, but we wanted to have enough interest for our partner to be in our organization on the one end, and we balanced that with, uh, you know, the least, let's say, dilution uh, kind of process that we could have created to our organization. So the balance there was enough interest for our uh, partners while uh, minimizing the dilution to the existing uh, shareholders of the organization. That was really the uh, the thought behind that. Um, so that led us to the number that uh, we got. In the last round, it was uh, 100 million, and then the current investors actually uh, joined uh, to uh, preserve their, uh, let's say, their, their equity level. Uh, so it was, and it ended up in 120 million. And I heard you say a couple of times the word partner. And, and I think that a partnership is, is really what this is all about when you're looking at, you know, bringing on people for the long run and to share the journey with you. But as you're looking at this, and, and obviously you were, and you have been in, in thank God, you know, fortunately in a position of luck, you know, given the, the financial uh, circumstances of the business. Uh, but but at what point do you realize or what is that approach to really understanding whether there is an alignment or not to really have someone being labeled as your partner for the long run? Yeah, so I think that um, 
I'm a very personal, right? I'm a very results-oriented guy, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, the, you can enjoy the, the ride and so on, but in the end, if we don't deliver as a team, then something doesn't work, right? Uh, that's very simple from my point of view. So we set up very clear KPIs and targets, very aggressive in most cases. I really like to challenge everyone in the organization. That's something uh, that you'll hear in our, you go in, inside, in the office, you'll hear everyone that saying very clearly that uh, they are uh, challenged with the targets uh, of uh, end of year and so on. And that's the approach of this organization. Now, our partners are there to enable uh, and to support uh, those specific ambitions and uh, uh, targets that we have. And it's very clear if we don't if we don't deliver in the end, right? Then uh, it's very clear that something didn't work. Whether it was on our side, on the partner side, and so on, that's something something that we can investigate. But luckily for us, I can tell you that we had those two uh, rounds of investment, and I can tell you that we are very happy with both of them. So we didn't have a lot. So uh, two out of two is quite nice. Yeah, I don't know how the future would look like because every time that you uh, also increase the complexity level, right, the requirement that you have from your partners is also uh, uh, higher and uh, you expect something that is, you know, uh, is more than uh, you have at the moment. But I can tell you for sure that I'm very happy and quite pleased with uh, with the partners that we have at the moment. And I'm happy to call them partners because this is really the feeling. Now, when you sit into, into, in a board meeting and everyone is there trying to help and, you know, there are no arguments and, you know, you can always argue on the business side and good discussions are always uh, important, right? Uh, so that's part of uh, uh, challenging the assumptions and so on. That's something that we do on a continuous basis. But, you know, when you summarize a meeting and everyone is there to support and everyone is taking on themselves, they're taking more and more responsibilities, right? I'll introduce you to this guy and I'll take this specific mission and I'll do that and I'll do that. That's really spirit that I'm looking for and I think that where we are today that's something that is um, really uh, expressed and uh, translated into numbers in the end and uh, that what is really leading us to exceed our expectations already after Q2 right uh, so we managed to achieve our expectations for 2021 already in Q2 and that's uh, right. very nice to see so now we are working on expanding more and more, but that's really like pure, uh, uh, from my point of view, pure bonus. Nice. Well, congr congratulations on that, Ruby. So so for the folks that are listening to get an idea on the size and the scope of site today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else? Yeah, so we are uh, around 120 employees today. Um, we grew around 100% uh, uh, from employee perspective. Uh, around 300% uh, from revenue perspective this year, so a very successful year. Um, all in all, I would say that um, you know we are exceeding expectations at the moment. Of course, there are still a lot of things to do. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I think that uh, at every point uh, we always see uh, what can be improved, and we are trying to uh, to improve those specific weather processes, procedures, tools, capabilities. Uh, but overall, I can tell you that uh, 2021 is a very successful year for uh, for Sai, and uh, the future uh, is really uh, bright, uh, as I said. And uh, the, at the moment, uh, we are investing a lot of time also with looking at potential acquisitions on our side. So that's uh, part of um, 
the inorganic growth that we are trying to develop in our organization. Nice. So then, as part of thinking about the future and what that holds, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the mission and vision of uh, SAI is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that um, if we're able to create a standard, right, taking what we do and make it a standard that every organization is following this specific standard, I think that uh, the world would be a safer place for sure from cybersecurity kind of attacks uh, point of view. I'm not saying uh, resilient, right, because there's no such thing, but I can tell you that the cost to attackers to actually being able to beat or to get access into organizations would definitely be dramatically higher. Uh, ransomware uh, and uh, the similar items uh, would be um, maybe generated only by true professionals and not uh, like every kid in the market can do that like like you see today. Uh, and more than that, I would say at least every organization would be able to very clearly state what is the maturity level of the organization. I mean numbers, right? Quantify that in a very accurate way, what is the journey of the organization to go, what is the budget that needs to be invested in cybersecurity, and above all, what is the organizational risk in terms of dollar value. And I think that uh, most organizations today are not able to answer those questions in a very clear way, and I think that our capabilities will definitely help to uh, to solve that and to provide uh, those capabilities as a, let's say, as a natural language in every organization. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Ruby, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that point where you were coming out of the army and, and wondering about a world where you would be bringing a company to life. And you have that opportunity of also, you know, having that Ruby, you know, actually listen, right? Because we're talking about 2012 and, you know, maybe that younger self sometimes doesn't listen that much. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say that that younger self is listening and you got the ear of that younger Ruby and you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Ruby? Yeah. Number one advice from my point of view other than all the things that I already knew, you know, uh, I knew that quality is important at the time and so on. I knew a lot of things, right? But one thing that I think is the most important advice that I can give myself or any other uh, founder of a company or someone that is going to a, uh, to a personal uh, journey, right, would be invest in the team. I think that the most, in, you know, I started as a one-man show. I thought, yeah, I can do that. I can do that alone. Uh, let's, uh, and I, I spent, two or three years doing that alone. And it was nice. I mean, I enjoyed the journey and uh, so on and so forth. But Sai became a true brand and capability and a power in the market only when the team was realized. That means when I had partners, and again, I'm using the, the word partners because my you know employees and those people that joined the organization after me, from my point of view, they are true partners. Um, and that was the one thing that I think changed completely the way that we work, people that are dedicated, obligated to the success of the organization, they have personal interest for that to be successful, that changed completely the way that I look, the quality of the delivery and everything around it, right? The satisfaction of customers, the quality of revenue, the, the specific margins that we have on projects and so on. Because everyone was dedicated and everyone wanted it to succeed. 
And I think that the team is the number one key item. Every company that I'll be in the, in the future, number one thing that I'll do is first build uh, an excellent team around me uh, and take it from there. Nice. Well, Ruby, I love it. For the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn, email, phone, uh, Facebook, whatever. I'm all everywhere. Um, I can uh, give you uh, the email if uh, that's uh, that's needed, and we can do it that, uh, that way. Uh, but I'm uh, very available on LinkedIn as well, and of course uh, they can reach out to you because now we are friends as well. Right? There you go, Ruby. <laughs> so for the for for so I think that the folks that are listening will get a very good sense of what is the best way to get a hold of you. But Ruby. I want to thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.